Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Esperanza Brizuela Garcia, and today I will be talking to Dr. Jeff Schauer about his book, Wildlife Between Empire and Nation in 20th Century Africa, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2019, as part of the African Histories and Modernity series. Dr. Schauer is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Dr. Schauer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here. Um, I wonder if you could get us started um, just by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you became interested in African history in general, and in particular about the history of wildlife in Africa. Sure. Um, So I grew up in a very rural and um, very conservative corner of Northern California. And I think I came to the study of history in part, at least through um, a couple of experiences in high school that stayed with me. I was part of the first class at our high school to take world history um, as opposed um, to European history as a sophomore. And I remember our teacher that year skipping the unit on Africa. Um, And I vividly remember him saying, Africa has no history, so we can just move on beyond um, uh, this section of our book. And at the time, I knew that was something that didn't seem like it could be right, but that I didn't have either the knowledge or the vocabulary, I think, to push back at that. Um, But what it did mean is that as an undergraduate student at UC Irvine, even though I was focusing on um, on European history, um, I was very keen to take as many courses in African history as um, as I could. And I was also a junior in high school during the 2002-2003 school year, which straddled um, the debates around the invasion of Iraq and then the invasion itself. And my U.S. history teacher would begin class each day by showing us clips from Fox News, not an irony, but as a form of um, as propaganda. And this whole class over this, the course of this whole school year um, was geared to persuade a bunch of 16-year-olds that kind of all of U.S. history up to that point proved the necessity of waging this war of aggression against Iraq. And those of us who dissented from this somewhat um, creative, I guess, interpretation of the past were labeled traitors and communists and so on. Um, And a good number of people from my high school class subsequently joined the military and were sent to Iraq. Um, Not all of them came home. And I think what this experience and its aftermath showed me were just how high the stakes of interpreting the past could be. And also flagged for me the study of empire as something that seemed very kind of urgent and relevant at that moment. And so after majoring in history and anthropology at Irvine, I went off to grad school um, at UC Berkeley, where I was trained as an historian of, of, uh, of the British Empire. Um, And my focus there was on Britain's empire in Africa, and in particular on colonial and national era conservation regimes in Eastern and Central Africa. Um, During a year abroad as an undergraduate in London, as I was beginning to think about grad school a little bit, I had the opportunity to get my feet wet in some archives. And I was initially interested in thinking about the kind of representation of nature um, from British colonies in British museums uh, and galleries but then decided that I was more interested in thinking about the creation and the management of these supposedly natural spaces in the colonies themselves. 
Um, and that's where I kind of picked up in grad school where, uh, where this book had its origins. Oh, and um, can you tell us a little bit about how, um, one of the things that I was very, <laughs> I found incredibly um, challenging in your book is, or, but I imagine it was very challenging for you, uh, just just like finding that locus, because it seems like you have these themes uh, that are running through the book. But like you said, you're trying to sort of push the chronology back a little bit and to some extent, given the historiography, also uh, move to new regions. Um, so it's like you're, you're tracing these themes uh, throughout different parts of Eastern and Central Africa. Uh, but I was just trying to imagine myself, how do you trace that in the archives? You know, what was, what was the locus of documents that... It, gave you a sense of which direction to go. Hmm. In some ways, I think the the realization that telling the story through these themes would be a useful device came much later um, as a way of kind of imposing some order um, <laughs> on, a, on a project that I suppose like uh, many of our projects um, and their inceptions are really uh, sort of messy and disorganized. Um, and initially, I envisioned this project being kind of a study of the late 19th century. But um, in grad school, my advisor encouraged me to think much more expansively. And so then I became focused on the period of kind of the 20s and 30s. And then I realized that I, I really wanted this in a way, way to kind of straddle the period between the colonial era and the national um, era. Um, but these themes just sort of kept pushing through based on what I'd encountered in the archives, I think, and were born out of a way of, of um, as you suggested, right, kind of attempting to refine kind of some of the existing literature and debates around um, kind of the arc of conservation in Africa between the colonial period um, and the period after, um, after independence. Um, and so the contours of the project kind of took shape along those along those lines. Um, just to give um, maybe listeners a little bit of background, um, a lot of the existing literature and kind of critical perspectives on conservation in Africa make a particular set of assumptions. And I think some of these assumptions revolve around um, the similarity between conservation regimes advocated by kind of really early, and here we're talking late 19th, early 20th century, imperial advocates of wildlife preservation on the one hand, and then conservation regimes that are kind of there in the world and define a lot of um, conservation practice in Africa now. And the signature characteristics of these regimes, I think, are the work of elite preservationists from outside of Africa, outside of the continent, and defining wildlife as this imperial and this global trust, and the kind of disenfranchisement of African colonial subjects and then national citizens that resulted from that and their alienation from land and natural resources, and then the eventual replacement of that kind of imperial framework for conservation with an international one that looks awfully similar. Um, and so this assumption um, that we can draw kind of a straight line from the emergence of these early imperial societies in the um, late 19th, early 20th century, all the way through to the World Wildlife Fund and the fortress conservation models that we might see in the world today, seem to kind of write off the bulk of the colonial period as inconsequential, and also to suggest that Africans were powerless in the face of the kind of imposition of this model. And so a lot of the time in the archives that I spent um, was kind of looking um, for the experiences of Africans. Um, and at first I thought I would have a lot of trouble finding this, but then I realized that they were everywhere. And that as I dug through the archives, um, I realized that the actors most closely associated with these older, older stories and kind of assumptions about the arc of conservation um, the imperial preservationists, the local preservation societies, 
um, imperial and international uh, kinds of publics. They're almost entirely absent from the archival record of, of, of what's going on in colonies during this period. And instead, there was this world of competing branches of a complex colonial state um, that had drastically, in some cases, different views about the place of wildlife in colonial kind of political and moral economies. Um, and it was a world in which African subjects and then citizens um, across this region of Eastern and Central Africa that I try to look at were really front and center um, in debating and contesting and also in enforcing the management um, of wildlife. So it meant kind of a creative reading of the archive. And I think looking for references to conservation politics outside of um, the spaces where you might expect to find those. Um, but I think um, at the end of the day, kind of being able to uncover the more active roles um, of these kinds of figures helps us to put kind of flesh on the bones of this period of um, uh, colonial rule in the early period after independence that before had been had been treated as uh, sort of a black box, I guess. Yeah, no, and, and it's 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 kind of interesting to uh, see you kind of fill those gaps. I mean, it, it, when I was reading, I found it, for instance, uh, I mean, I, it should not have been, but it was revealing uh, to see that uh, some pre-colonial uh, uh, states had like their own sort of ideas about how to manage and, and, and uh, maybe not maybe the, the word conserve or preserve wasn't necessarily used, uh, but like, manage their own wildlife and how to some extent that knowledge uh, was tapped on and to some extent it wasn't at, or at, what, at what in what times and what moments it is tapped on and in which moments it is not. Um, so I was wondering if we could use, uh, as we start going a little bit to how you put together this story uh, in your first chapter, Imperial Arc, uh, when you talk about like the emergence of this uh, sort of ways of thinking, uh, I wonder if I could, you could talk to us a little bit about the moment right before, you know, not just what was happening in terms of the, the, the interest in, in wildlife in Africa. Uh, where does it come from in in, in, in like, is, is there an interest in wildlife in general in, in empire? I mean, if you can just tell us where does it start coming from? When does it start transferring to Africa mm. uh, on the part of Europeans first, but then uh, also a little bit what, like what you, you, you talk in your book about just Africans themselves, African states, African peoples, as Europeans starting to arrive, uh, they've had had uh, their own experiences trying to uh, understand their own sort of like ecology. So can you tell us a little bit about that, that? Sure, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that, that that shift in the late 19th century marks in a way is a transition from European ways of thinking about animals in Africa as being game as opposed to wildlife. Um, in a way, that transition is what sets up what, what follows. So if I, I, I sort of back up in the spirit of your question, I think the earliest interest, I think, um, in the kind of 19th century, 18th century, even a little bit earlier in African wildlife is as something that can be hunted. Um, so throughout this period in, in kind of early European exploration, um, even before the periods of conquest um, in Africa, there's a lot of kind of writing by explorers that spends at least a little bit of time conveying to their publics back home, um, especially as these accounts became ways of kind of monetizing travel in Africa in a sense. Um, about all the animals that you could kind of find and shoot there. Um, 
And so if we think about the kind of growth of economic links um, or the kind of reconstitution maybe of economic links between parts of Africa and Europe during the 19th century, some of this revolves around the kind of growing importance of uh, the trade in ivory. Um, and so there are large numbers of, uh, of Europeans going out in some cases under the auspices of a state as in the Belgian Congo to hunt um, uh, elephants for their ivory. Um, in other cases, you have sort of freelance uh, individuals going out. Um, I think this also speaks a little bit to the growth of civil society in Europe and the emergence of museums um, as kind of spaces for public education, both in a kind of enlightenment sense about the world at large, but also later on um, as spaces to educate Europeans about the territories that um, their governments had either seized or were in the process um, of seizing. And so there's a huge trade during the 19th century um, in um, animal specimens um, and animal right, sort of products for display in museums um, from kind of big spaces like the massive natural history museum um, in London down to kind of really small local museums in kind of corners of Northern England. Um, so I think um, kind of hunting and display are what were the kind of two, the two ways in which immediately prior to the colonial conquest, Europeans were most familiar with and fascinated by um, African wildlife. Um, there hasn't, there's been surprisingly little, I think, done with, um, African pre-colonial conservation regimes around wildlife in particular. I think there's lots about agriculture, um, looks about right to fisheries and so on, but relatively little about wildlife. And so I was really indebted in that section of the book, um, to kind of profiles of pre-colonial African states in which, um, historians had sort of small sections on hunting or small sections on uh, a sort of fishing or on um, sort of the public display of animals and the relationship to state power and this sort of thing. Um, but there really is kind of a book waiting to be written and somebody else will have to do that, I think. Um, but about these pre-colonial kind of management uh, regimes or sort of natural resource um, a, a kind of regimes. Because in every society that that is written about in this way or, or that appears in the... Um, in the writings of these European explorers and hunters, there are these indications, right? That people had complex understandings about their landscapes. Um, these were not kind of natural and untouched spaces in the ways that Europeans came to believe, um, but were places that were actively managed and incorporated in, into people's um, right, sort of worldviews and economies um, and, and were sort of sites for the extraction of uh, uh, sort of cultural artifacts and so on. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean that would be an, a very, very good book. Uh, if you, if you will, now can we? Can you tell us a little bit? So, what are the sort of the elements of this new thinking about wildlife that that emerged in this very, very early period, just as uh, as, as colonial uh, colonialism is setting down, and we see the emergence of these societies that uh, seek to preserve the fauna? How are they constructing this? Uh, their, their arguments, mm -hmm. what are they arguing for? Uh, uh, and, you know, what is their, I mean, like one of the themes that you trace uh, throughout the book is, is the relationship of this uh, sort of agents um, to government agents and, and to other constituents. So uh, how do we see this starting to configure in, in this early period? Mm. So I think that these early preservationists draw on a lot of rhetoric that's already kind of built into um, ways in which the British government and the British public are thinking about or being taught to think about their empire. And I think the role of trusteeship is really important here. 
So the colonial project as a whole, I think, rested at least in part um, and at least in kind of public defenses of the project on notions of, of trusteeship, right? That Europeans um, were conquering Africa, but they were conquering Africa um, to kind of hold these spaces in trust for when their civilizing mission, as, as they like to think about it, would prepare Africans to kind of take up the role um, in governing their own states. And a similar argument was made about wildlife, um, that um, Africans and even European settlers who went out to these colonies um, couldn't be trusted to manage this wildlife properly and that the imperial government needed to step in and it needed to formulate a basic kind of regulatory framework and set of laws um, on behalf of the global public to which this wildlife, first an imperial public and then a global public to which this wildlife belonged. So there's this growing kind of idea, and this is, I think, derives in part from kind of late 19th century liberal uh, sort of cosmopolitan um, ideas that you can find in Europe, that um, there's an interest in animals, not not exclusively as things that should be hunted, but as, as something that's kind of valuable um, in a different kind of cultural, if not quite yet scientific right as well. Um, and that because it's so valuable, um, that it needs to be kind of governed at a, in a, at a sort of levels up from the local communities that are most invested um, in it and held in this kind of trust because it really doesn't belong, right, only to the colony or the nation state um, in which animals can be found, but instead to a kind of wider humanity um, uh, that sort of sees and finds value in, in these animals, but sees and finds value in them in these really particular kinds of ways. It didn't leave a lot of um, space um, for any of those pre-colonial, right, uh, kind of management regimes that we alluded to a little bit earlier. Yeah. And, and how, and uh, I mean, in your f next chapter, you start tracing how these changes, you know, when, when it starts to, we, we you have this very, I, I find it very illuminated contrast between preservation and conservation. Uh, and when we start seeing this shift between seeing wildlife, like you said, as something that has this inherent value as something that is more like a resource uh, that can be seen within a, a, certain, a, certain, uh, a certain understanding of the political economy. Um, so how do we start seeing what, we, what starts to happen when we see those changes and what brings them about? Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons this kind of really small number of imperial preservation has had so much success at the beginning, I think, is because the colonial conquest um, was kind of very violent, right? In many of these, um, in many of these places, um, but it often wasn't followed by the development of what we would think of um, as sort of modern forms of governance, in the sense of sort of a policy-making apparatus and the kind of ministries and departments that would go along with this, and that define later periods of colonial rule in Africa. Um, in many ways, there were spaces that were governed as sort of administrative no man's land. Um, and so if there wasn't a lot of built in kind of policy machinery or apparatus that was interested, a really small number of people who were well connected um, could influence things hugely. And that's what happens kind of roughly from the 1890s up until 1910, 1920. But I think what happens next is that um, the kind of crafting of wildlife policy and the shift from preservationism um, which prizes the protection of individual animals and animal species and populations to conservation, which is thinking more about um, kind of larger units of study, the kind of use and exploitation um, in a sustainable fashion um, of these animals. Th that comes about in part through the, the general thickening of colonial rule that's occurring 
um, throughout this period and the emergence um, of uh, sort of new departments, um, new ministries in a sense, um, and colonial officials who derive their authority from kind of new forms of expertise. Um, kind of formal ecology gets introduced a little bit um, later on um, in the 50s and the 60s, um, but already in the 20s and 30s, um, there are people who are leveraging expertise and kind of early forms of um, uh, sort of development um, and even kind of administrative science in a sense, um, and who begin to make the claim against these preservationists that they're the officials on the ground and that they know best what it takes to develop Africa along the lines um, that colonial governments are beginning to envision as they think more systematically um, in the era um, of kind of two world wars and a depression about how to kind of get the most um, out of their colonies. And the other thing that's happening um, during this period, of course, is that African subjects are, are right, very active in, in, in all of this um, and are constantly kind of pushing um, back against the creation of colonial wildlife policies that alienate them from land um, and access to right, the animals that live on that land or that prevent them from defending um, attacks by wildlife on their crops or on their, um, on their livestock. Um, and although they have relatively few formal channels for exerting this kind of influence during this period, um, they're able to use kind of the threat of dissent, um, the threat in some cases of armed um, insurrection um, to push back on colonial authorities and to make colonial authorities um, see that making concessions to Africans around some of these areas um, of wildlife policy where this early imperial framework was very unpopular is a way for those authorities to shore up um, their standing, right, uh, with the African communities um, that they're charged with governing over against those communities will. Um, I was wondering if you could, um, one of the things that it starts developing in, in this two chapters three and four and i think it's it's really it's a really um um sort of astute uh, way of 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 threading the different themes in your book is how you use um sort of like specific examples like you know you talk about uganda and northern rhodesia but how in in a way under the, there's these local circumstances and these local actors with it, acting in in response to very specific things, but then at the same time there's this this start we see starts to see the emergence of this kind of like more um, widespread set of ideas or like you said supported by expertise or uh, but also but just like a uh, like a need you know in terms of governing and, mm. and, and administering and managing uh, so things that are working in one area there will be copied in another area or and then adapted to to fit uh, to fit certain uh, conditions so can you can you give us some examples of how this was happening on the ground you know how uh, there's a policy that appears in one place and then it starts to sort of uh, be seen as maybe something that can be used in another place, etc. Sure. Um, so one way that I, I tried to chart this is through looking at particular institutions um, and the wildlife departments, which early on are game departments, were kind of where I chose to um, where I chose to look at this. The earliest game departments in a colony um, like Kenya are primarily charged with um, kind of what we would think of as anti-poaching kind of work. But in the 1920s, in Uganda, where the British ruled through um, Ugandan intermediaries who were 
the uh, kind of heirs to the powerful pre-colonial states, there was a lot of pressure on colonial authorities um, about what um, the preservation of elephants in particular meant for Ugandan communities. Um, the laws that British authorities passed protecting elephants um, meant that their numbers grew. And as their numbers grew, it meant that there was more of what we would today talk about as human wildlife conflict that took place. Um, and elephant herds um, inflicted enormous destruction on the crops of, um, uh, of Ugandan farmers. And so in the 1920s, uh, colonial authorities in Uganda created um, not a game department, but an elephant control department, um, which in some ways resembled a game department. Um, but its primary task was not so much protecting animals, but was killing large numbers of elephants. Um, and it was killing large numbers of ele elephants in the service of a colonial development project that believed that the retention of large numbers of African megafauna um, encouraged bad habits among Africans who would be encouraged to continue hunting them, impaired Africans' um, farming abilities, if, if that farming ability was essential to colonial authorities being able to extract as much wealth as possible um, from the colonies. Um, and in the 1930s, what could have been just kind of a one-off Ugandan experience was shifting from conservation, or rather was shifting from preservation to conservation, um, became exported to the colony of Northern Rhodesia, um, now um, uh, Zambia, um, when the game warden um, of this elephant control department was shipped off to survey wildlife um, in Northern Rhodesia. And of course, he took with him all of the sensibilities that he developed um, over at that point, about a seven or eight year period of managing this elephant control department um, in Uganda. And a lot of local preservationists in northern Rhodesia hoped that this guy would show up and he would um, encourage colonial authorities there to embrace their ideas for a massive system of new national parks, um, kind of early transfrontier conservation areas, um, and the protection of wildlife. But what this Ugandan warden Charles Pittman did instead was to import his Ugandan model and say that kind of what this northern, northern Rhodesian game department ought to be about um, is facilitating um, economic and agricultural forms of development and effectively using its resources to separate humans from animals as much as possible. Um, now, when that game department becomes created in Northern Rhodesia in the early, well, in the late 1930s, there's a bit of a lag, but in the late 1930s, um, its top-down mission is precisely that. It's kind of built in this Ugandan mold, which I think nicely illustrates how the kind of circulation of these new experts through this network of British colonies in Eastern and Central Africa could export these models. On the ground, that's not always the case um, because of the way in which through other forms of circulation of um, kind of colonial personnel, um, forms of militarization had crept into conservation and became kind of a big part of what a lot of wildlife departments were doing. But in, in, in two different ways, kind of the, the circulation of wildlife experts um, we can see the um, transplantation of these ideas from one colony to another about how to set up a new wildlife department, what its mission should be. And on the other hand, through the circulation of other forms of personnel, um, we can see the beginnings um, of the militarization um, of conservation or the intensification of militarization of conservation in these colonies as well, because a lot of these early game wardens and game rangers were former either police or military personnel. Um, and there are a series of other steps that happen later on that perhaps we can come to later that kind of deepen the militarization of conservation. Um, but the personnel that are chosen to lead these are a big part of that, of that process. And the decision to recruit 
um, for a lot of the uh, sort of mid-ranking employees from the military and the police, I think has a role to play there. So a different kind of version of the circulation of experts, um, experts, right, in uh, uh, sort of policing and violence in this case throughout the British Empire um, of officers being imported from in India or the Middle East to serve um, not no longer in the military, but now as um, members of these new game and wildlife departments, but bringing with them the kind of tools and sensibilities and mindsets about um, kind of how to deal with colonial populations using the tools of violence. Mm -hmm. Which it, it's interesting because in a way it sort of speaks to to another thing that it's sort of runs through your book, which is sort of how the, in the context of empire, you, you have this, like you said, circulation of both people and ideas. Uh, in this case, it's not even limited just to Africa, but even like you said, to India and, and other um, other regions that are sort of um, bringing in people or ideas from those areas. Um, so when in the next couple of chapters, sort of you, you move towards uh, um, getting closer to independence and through independence. And I think uh, if it hadn't become clear at this point, it, it becomes very, very clear in this in these two chapters that uh, wildlife is never just about uh, you know, it never exists outside of politics and that uh, uh, political, um, both it's used as, as a way to uh, gain political advantages and, and, and as a way to make a, a political, a greater political arguments. Um, uh, but I think in, in these two chapters, that becomes even even more uh, more clear. Uh, can you tell us a little bit how, how things start to shift and how ideas about wildlife start to change as uh, we enter the decolonization uh, period and as African uh, colonies become African nations and basically how we start, uh, how the, the, the role of politics starts to become much more clear. Mm, absolutely. And this happens, as you're suggesting, kind of on both sides or on multiple of the sides around kind of debates around wildlife politics. Um, I think kind of wildlife politics becomes connected in particular in the 1950s um, to African anti-colonial nationalist movements because of the kind of pent up discontent um, with a kind of long-term, again, alienation from uh, kind of natural resources, the right to protect one's crops or one's stock that a lot of colonial law had maintained. Because even in these game departments where part of the logic was that they were built to kind of exterminate animals that posed a threat to people's crops, people were not themselves permitted to, uh, to make these kinds um, of interventions. Um, and so as national parties emerge and as they begin to identify sort of a suite of issues that they can stitch together to outline these um, claims and condemnations of colonialism, they realize that there's a very potent one um, in people's discontent about these colonial wildlife conservation regimes. Um, in the southern province of um, Zambia, for example, um, then they call him Northern Rhodesia in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s, um, the African National Congress Party of Northern Rhodesia um, uses discontent about the kind of managing of natural and cultural resource spaces as, uh, as a recruitment tool. Um, so they go around to people who um, feel that animals are being protected at their own expense or people who are being displaced to make way for the kind of engineering of new natural uh, spaces. Um, and they offer them membership cards to the ANC and say, right, join on the basis of these complaints, these very specific complaints that you have with this wildlife conservation uh, kind of regime. It's also the case that as the process of decolonization begins to kind of get underway 
and as British authorities begin to kind of read the writing on the wall about the coming of decolonization, that there is more creation of formal spaces for African representatives to um, articulate their views. Um, in some cases, there is a small amount of space made in the legislative councils um, for African representatives or for people who are speaking to represent um, what's described as African interests. Um, in other cases, there are kind of lower levels of African legis uh, African provincial or African representative um, councils, as is the case um, in Northern Rhodesia. And in the minutes of these councils, you see people offering these really trenchant critiques of these colonial conservation regimes. They refer to um, the protection of wildlife in these ways as Ngomwe wa Serikali in Swahili, which is government cattle. Um, and these are similar kind of phrasing um, in Northern Rhodesia. The idea that kind of the colonial state is treating wildlife as though it's valuable livestock at the expense of the well-being of African states and citizens. Um, there is a lot of talk about how these colonial regimes have kind of impacted African kind of culture and livelihoods in negative kinds of ways. Um, so lots of use of both informal and formal channels whereby um, discontent with colonial conservation becomes attached to kind of a broader package of nationalist complaints about colonial rule. And at the same time, um, as European settlers and their kind of preservation and conservation allies abroad begin to contemplate decolonization, they begin to kind of refresh their arguments about why it is that control over African wildlife needs to be um, not so much an imperial trust now, but a global or an international trust, and why African nations themselves kind of weren't fit in their minds to assume responsibility for control over wildlife or protected areas. And they attach um, these critiques to the kind of frightening violence that they see in um, moments uh, like the Mau Mau uprising um, in Kenya in the state of emergency uh, that results and the kind of mischaracterization of that violence um, as being uh, uh, sort of an, an innate quality of a kind of savage, to use the terms that they would use, a savage African mind as opposed to something that's rooted um, in discontent about really material kinds of conditions. Um, so just as, as African nationalists are politicizing the control of wildlife for their own ends and saying that if we win power, right, we'll, we'll change the calculation here and these laws will no longer seem to benefit um, animals at the expense of human life and well-being, um, so too on the other side of this conversation are these both um, European settler preservationists and then international preservationists kind of beginning the work of attempting to create a... Um, a post-independence framework for conservation that would limit the ability of African states in different kinds of ways to maintain control um, over um, wildlife departments, um, national parks or game reserves and this sort of thing. Uh, and how does that new framework starts to take shape? I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting... Um it's an interesting moment in your book because then you 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 encounter this moment in which all of a sudden you're not dealing with uh, on the one hand you're dealing with a set of ideas that have become sort of globalized uh, on on one side uh, but then the other side you're dealing with this basically multiplication of states you know uh, smaller states uh, that are trying to um, sort of assert some some kind of or create a policy towards wildlife and, and, and assert their their right to to implement said policies and, and make those arguments in front of this sort of global, globalized 
um, uh, set of agents. Um, we you talk about it in your in the book about uh, parks, you know, just uh, you know, preser- uh, conservation parks and 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 the, the role they play in in this new framework and and the limitations uh, that this brought with it. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so, of all the kind of spaces where um, the protection of animals was a kind of flashpoint of any kind, I, right? You're right to observe that national parks are sort of the key are sort of the key space there. And so control over those national parks after independence became this really contested um, kind of process. And there were a number of different ways in which this new kind of global alliance of people, some of whom are conservationists, some of whom are preservationists, but all of whom are invested in different kinds of ways in limiting the ability of African governments to control these spaces, a number of different ways in which they go about this. Um, Some of it is through the provision of economic incentives. um, So kind of tying... Um, larger development projects to the maintenance of kind of the integrity um, of these spaces and hoping that they can win over um, the leadership of new African states. Um, In other cases, there is a pedagogical approach. Um, The College of African Wildlife Management is an institution that's founded in Tanzania kind of right on the eve of independence. And the idea is is that it will be a space to train a a new generation not just of Tanzanian, but also of, of um, uh, kind of game wardens, game rangers of the future from all across, um, in particular, Anglophone Africa, but really more broadly than that even. Um, and to kind of inculcate in this new generation of wildlife officers, the sensibilities of, um, of the colonial era. And then there are even the more straightforward conflicts over who's able to manage the parks. Um, so as we all know, independence doesn't necessarily mean in most of these cases kind of a turning of the page on the colonial era. And in many cases, um, officials from the colonial era stay in place, whether for a short period of time or a longer period um, of time. And so the kind of contest over um, Africanization um, is another part of this uh, story. The rate at which Africanization, that is a replacement of African employees um, of parks um, in particular, um, uh, should uh, occur is a, a significant source of debate as well. And then there's a role of science in the parks. Um, and that's one way that I tried to look at kind of the tensions as they emerged in three different national parks um, in East Africa in particular, um, or in four really. There's an uh, organization called the Nuffield Unit of Tropical Animal Ecology that is created um, with influence by a lot of uh, British ecologists to study uh, the Queen Elizabeth National Park and Murchison Falls National Park in Uganda. Um, the Ford Foundation sets up uh, the Savo Project, um, which is a similar kind of ecological study unit in Savo East National Park in Kenya. And then a kind of constellation of international interests fund the um, Serengeti Research Organization, which is, again, similar kind of body set up in Serengeti National Park. And in each of these cases, you see a kind of a dynamic group of um, actors come into play. Um, there are these international scientists, um, there are expatriate um, uh, game wardens and game rangers who are trying to hang on to their old jobs, and there are new and often very young um, ministers and civil servants um, in new African governments who are trying to assert control over these spaces. And so the kind of clashes of authority around these um, become pretty spectacular in some of these moments in the 1960s. Um, equally spectacular, I think, is the kind of discontent that scientists have when they realize that their presence in these parks and the work that they're trying to do in these parks isn't neutral, but is rather deeply political, right? In all the ways that one would, would uh, uh, sort of expect and that they become drawn into these conflicts um, 
as well. Um, and so these three ecological studies became a way of thinking about um, kind of the role of, of kind of politics and science in shaping the study of these parks, kind of tension between um, the idea of those who believe that the park should be kind of left alone in the face of ecological change versus those who thought that they should be managed more, those who thought it was possible to take a purely scientific approach in the management of parks and those who realized that the eyes of the world were on African states in their management of, of, uh, of these spaces. Um, and so there had to be um, a nod towards public opinion and kind of the formula, formulation of policy and um, kind of the, the style of management uh, that was going to take place. Uh, I mean, having having uh, said this, um, I, I wonder if you could sort of. I mean, you had this. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a complex uh, set of problems, obviously, and I think part of your book is precisely trying to draw our attention to how it is so much more complicated than you know than just let's uh, send a check to the World Wildlife uh, Fund and hope that you know the elephants will be safe um and um and i i found it deeply um uh deeply moving in the sense that uh i mean we obviously we all feel like for i found myself trying to figure out where do we get this connection you know to wildlife and and why is it like african wildlife seems to have this kind of very emotive um you know to Mm -hmm. to many of us. Uh, and in a way, that's kind of like the story that you're telling us, you know, this is this is how that particular uh, connection seems to have been created. Um, uh, but in a way, what you're trying to make us do is not just make us think about how there's there's a very specific way in which that that emotional connection was created, but that the ways in which we engage with that emotional connection have an impact. And, uh, and so I wonder if you could just give us, I mean, just like you do in the book, uh, like a set of ideas that you just want us to think about when, when we think about uh, this issue. Mm, sure. So one of the things I think I, I was hoping that readers would come away from the book with is, is kind of partly what we've just been talking about, the idea that um, conservation is not apolitical, right? That um, in fact, it's a deeply sort of a political um, enterprise and is about claim making, um, about asserting ownership at different kinds of values over something. Um, and so I think many of the conversations about conservation that take place um, would take place in a better way if they proceeded from that kind of premise rather than kind of trying to push back um, against it. Um, the other thing that I, 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 I hope I can get people to think about is how the kind of highly militarized world of conservation that we kind of see and take for granted around us today. Um, there's just a new net, or I think it's a National Geographic documentary called Akashinga that I haven't had a chance to see yet, but that's about a group of, um, it's, a, it's about a female anti-poaching unit um, in Zimbabwe. Um, and there are various Netflix series about kind of anti-poaching. Um, and a lot of this, if not quite celebrates, at least sort of takes for granted the role of kind of violence and conservation policy. And so the other thing that I hope um, this book could begin to do is to encourage people to think about um, kind of violence as being so central to, to conservation, not as something that's innate um, or was sort of there from the beginning, um, although it's certainly written through a lot of the colonial period, but th- that instead was really contingent, right? There were particular moments um, 
when the deployment of violence ebbed a little bit because of precisely the forms of politics that were occurring around conservation, and then moments where it intensified. And at those moments where it intensified, there were actors who could envision other paths for conservation to have been able to take. And so I think conservation practitioners maybe, but also those of us who kind of care about conservation or who are kind of onlookers to conversations about conservation um, could think about the deployment of violence not as something that should be casual or that is natural in these kinds of policy discussions, but that's highly contingent as something else that could be useful. Um, And I think also thinking about the tension between the kind of global um, and the national um, especially in an era like ours, where there are these kind of intensification of nationalism um, in many ways, um, but an intensification that's coming about in part precisely um, because of the kind of weakening um, of, of nation states' ability to kind of control um, much of what goes on inside of uh, inside of their boundaries um, in kind of what I assess here as a neoliberal world order. Um, but just to kind of take care in thinking about that tension between the national and the global and to kind of understand the critiques that Africans make um, in many cases of these global conservation networks and regimes and work, um, not as a product of people who um, are corrupt or who are misinformed, but instead people who are living with the kind of weight of the history that I've tried to describe here. Yeah, I know. And and in a way, I, I, I keep thinking also about... Um, in, in a way, one of the things that you trace is sort of like the building of an idea or a set of ideas around wildlife that sort of hinges on the notion that, like you said, that this is a resource for everyone, you know, for the world. Uh, so there's like a kind of community creation type of thing, like mm-hmm. an imagined community type of thing happening but only around wildlife. <laughs> no, it doesn't seem to be about like, oh, no, we are all part of this community and, and it, this is only a resource for the world in the sense that we're all part of the same world and, and it just doesn't seem to extend to like human beings, you mm-hmm. know, it just only extends to animals. And uh, and I, I found that to be, and as I said, you know, I, I started thinking about that as after reading um, your book. So I felt like that was, yeah, that was problematic. <laughs> Um, anyway, so is is there anything else that you would like to say about, you know, the conclusion of your book or, or could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? Oh, sure. Um, so I've got a few things I'm trying to work on um, and some of them are kind of smaller projects that I think will continue allowing me to think about conservation. Um, my next book project, I think, um, is thematically similar in that it's kind of very much interested in the transition between the colonial period and the national period and kind of meanings of decolonization and the extent to which decolonization is meaningful, um, but it's topically distinct. Um, and so I'm trying to look at um, British attempts to retain influence in other spheres of um, sort of governance in, in, in roughly the same kind of region as I did with this earlier book, but looking instead around um, kind of the sale of arms and attempts, attempts to influence uh, kind of the security state as, as the security state emerges and takes form, uh, uh, takes shape um, in new African states and the relationship between the British government and British arms manufacturers and industrialists on the one hand. Um, and I think the clear-eyed way in which African states enter into these transactions um, with the British and other international interlocutors um, 
believing that they have much to gain from these relationships as well and can control the terms um, around them. So rather than wildlife, it's instead kind of the manufacture of arms, sharing of intelligence, um, this sort of thing. But I think some of the same thematic questions that um, this project left me very interested um, in answering. I've done a bit of archival work for this project, but um, I uh, have a ways to go, I think, in figuring out kind of the parameters of it and uh, of what the story is. But I think that's one of the exciting things about having finished one project and being at the beginning of another is, is is starting over. It's very daunting, but um, uh, I'm also, I, I, uh, I think, enjoying it. Oh, yeah, no, that's the best part. It's like the possibilities are endless. Exactly. You know? <laughs> In a way, it's one of like the blessings of ignorance. You don't know much yet, so no. anything could be. <laughs> um, well, it sounds great, and I'm very, very thankful for you to sharing uh, both the, this uh, finished project and your upcoming projects with us. Um, I really enjoyed our talk today, and I thank you. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.